Welcome to the number one South Asian radio station in North America. Ruckus Avenue Radio. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, join me for a conversation with internationally known art and culture expert, Sandhya Jain Patel. Stay tuned. It's hard to put a price on art and culture. It's even harder to define it, and it's nearly impossible to present it thoughtfully in an ever-evolving market to an ever-changing audience. I personally have always been a proponent of cultural self-preservation and do often find it a challenge to both celebrate and promote the stories of the past with the reinvention of our identity and culture as the future unfolds. So I thought I'd ask an expert. Sandhya Jane Patel is an internationally known art and culture expert, specializing in South and Southeast Asia and the worldwide diaspora. She's a cultural producer and a sought-after partner for all sorts of media and commercial efforts. While she sharpened her skills as the vice president and department head of Indian, Himalayan, and Southeast Asian art at Christie's New York, her experiences as a Fulbright scholar, a traveler, and a lifelong learner have cultivated her ongoing mission to research and disseminate all types of cultural signifiers from across the brown spectrum. And with that, we began with a simple level set as I asked Sandhya to describe her expertise and what exactly she actually does. <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, my current billing, if you will, is that I am a cultural producer. And what that means is I help clients craft authentic and nuanced narratives by marrying diversity, equity, and inclusion principles with cultural research so that they can create compelling narratives that attract a wide audience. And when their audience likes what they hear, they will come back for more. <laughs> so. Right. The, the gift that keeps giving, right? And I mean... Absolutely. I think, you know, and in this case, clients means um, media, entertainment, brands, nonprofits, really any storyteller or cultural creative or creative person who is trying to sell something. And the fact of the matter is, is if your narrative is wrong, if it even is slightly off in some nuanced way that a certain section of the population will know, you will know on Twitter when it's too late to do anything about it. Right. <laughs> Tell me something as a result of such a peculiar year um, with so many highs and lows, in fact, um, you know, there's been a fair amount of reflection and discovery by uh, individuals, by institutions, by those in media and, and arts. You know, this past year, were there any hidden treasures for you, um, either personal or professional, as you've been able to, you know, so eloquently describe what, what you do, um, that you either discovered or for that matter, rediscovered in, in that reflection? It's, it's almost um, like you're inside my head, Abe. <laughs> so I actually launched SRC Partners with my co-founder 
on Independence Day for India last August. So even though I have been dreaming about doing this work full-time professionally for the last 15 years or more, it's only been um, recently that I've been able to devote myself full-time to this kind of work. In the past, this has been part of my um, unidentified, unpaid, unspoken labor in previous roles. But the last year has really shown me... um, that my dream of doing this work and dedicating myself to it full time uh, is, is the right dream and it's the right thing to do. Um, not only, as you mentioned, with everything happening in our culture and our society with the murders of George Floyd and others, with just the um, fortunate conversations that people are starting to have becoming comfortable with uncomfortable, uh, you know, conversations with other people, but then also, my personal spin on it is not just the DEI section, which of course I'm learning about and I practice and I make mistakes about every day. And that's the way you learn, but also putting that cultural uh, diversity and cultural nuance, authenticity lens in front of it. It's really, really important to connect that with, you know, what, what a, an individual's intersectionalities is or are combined with the DEI practice. Were there any nuggets that um, that you unearthed um, here that that gave you some aha moments in, in informing that work as it's sped along this year? Yeah, I mean, every single time I watch a television show or a movie or I read an article, and um, even just like you said, having that introspective. Uh, those introspective moments where I can look back on my career so far and think about what's happened while I was at Christie's or while I was at the shed or while I was working in other cultural institutions. And those moments where something might've occurred and I did not have the confidence to say anything Mm -hmm. because I was so much a part of that and forgive me for saying this, but it's true. The pale, male, and stale narrative. <laughs> wow. Uh, no, I love that description. Um, the, the moments of you actually coming to some of those conclusions, were, were did you feel like you had even more motivation to act on them? Absolutely. I think I am not part of that hazing club where if I had to go through it, somebody else has to go through it. I really believe truly and always have believed that a rising tide raises all boats. So if I've gone through that experience, there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. How can I help the next generation or my peers or even those who um, may be ahead of me in their careers, but have therefore been part of that brainwashing even longer than I have. How can I share my experiences and my thoughts and beliefs with others so that we can all rise together? And I think that's really the key. Of course, experience is always the best teacher, but at the same time, sharing experiences is the way that we grow as a community and as a society. Let me ask you this. You, you mentioned that experience is, is so important and so much of this is cultivated from, you know, an earlier age, an earlier time, you know, one's personal history and background, one's experience with institutions and, and different structural pieces. When did you realize that the idea of art and cultures and the whole notion of social studies, um, if you will, became 
much more of a sort of living and breathing organism for you as opposed to just a sort of subject to study? Were there, were there touch points along the way that, that fostered that kind of deeper understanding? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, growing up, you know, I was born and raised in New Jersey, um, as I think one quarter of all NRIs are or something like that, or at the time. I remember, but we would go back to India quite often because both of my parents had their parents, my grandparents, still living in India. And we went back um, as much as we could, minimum every four years, if not more often. And then once I became an adult, I went back almost every year um, through work and through my own personal travel. But I remember one visit, I think I was in college at that point, just starting college. My family and I went. We were staying with my um, Thaiji and Thauji, hanging out with my cousins. And my cousin took us to see some of her friends, one of whom was actually packing up to come back to college here in America. And it was so crazy. She looked at me and was, she was obviously very upset that she was having to go back. She didn't want to go back to America. She wanted to stay in in India, in Delhi with her friends, with her family. And she kind of looked at me and said, you don't know anything. What you, you know, you, you silly Americans, you don't know anything. Yeah. And I was so taken aback because, of course, being here in America, I get the same thing. You don't know anything. You're Indian, you know, that whole thing. And then going there, I thought I was really doing my best trying to straddle, you know, be a, a second culture kid, you know, straddling yeah. two worlds. And this person's telling me, you have no idea. Mm-hmm. You have no idea. You don't know who this person is. You don't know who that person is. You don't know what this book is. And I, I was sort of like, I don't know. Th- I don't know that in America. I get that all the time. I don't know what Cheers is. You know, I don't know what Welcome Back Cotter is. Like, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. And that moment of really understanding, I mean, again, somewhere in the back of my mind, I knew it wasn't really about me, but it did cut quite deeply, you know, to be told that I don't belong anywhere or to realize that nobody sees me as belonging anywhere that's when culture became art and culture became not just something you study in a book, but something that you live every day, a lived experience. And I think that that's what really started to motivate me about thinking of lived experiences Mm -hmm. as being the best teachers, but also sharing that with other people so that they can try to see a viewpoint that they could never know because they haven't lived the same thing. It's that whole idea of walking a mile in someone else's shoes, right? Sure. Um, but with a more positive spin than she put for me. <laughs> right. Yeah, perhaps not the, you know, the shaming experience in that way. But I mean, I wonder if the experience as a South Asian American is just flat different and that connectivity back to your um, family's roots is you know, in, in many ways, as you mentioned, right, you're, you're just constantly straddling. You're not really living in one or the other. And it's sort of this asymptotic relationship that you try and meet in the American experience and the Indian experience. Um, but perhaps that sounds like for you became really the, the kind of moment of saying, no, this is, this is really what the living experience is, as opposed to something to compartmentalize. That's right. You can approach it, but you will never meet it. Right. But is there a comfort in, in at least recognizing that, that like, and maybe by not necessarily meeting it, you're actually growing to create an even different sort of shade of that culture in the first place. That is exactly what I was going to say is that I was neither here nor there, but I was, 
again, like so many who identify with this, a third, you know, a third type and in the middle, a separate vertical than either side, you know, a combination of the two as imperfect or um, as unbalanced as that combination may be. And again, it's different for everybody. Yeah. And I realize as I'm saying this to you that, you know, much like my parents who came here from India and left behind a country that only exists in their mind, my, my experiences and my relationships are never going to be the same. No one else is going to experience that again. Right. You know, like my children, even, even people who are born in India now and coming here to States or vice versa, it's completely different. Um, and that's, there's something very special about that. There's something very, you know, like nostalgic and lovely as painful as it was to come by, I wear that experience and that identity proudly on my sleeve. And I wonder if that's, I was going to say, I wonder if that's a realization that is important, in fact, to come to because the evolution of that South Asian American experience, um, the nature of art and culture, not staying brown, um, you know, becoming different or, you know, with different color to it, with different celebrations to it. Is there, is it prone to becoming more beige? Is it, um, you know, is there, is there, uh, or, and is that a bad thing? Is there a celebration of what that's going to be like? Because again, your experience and my experience is going to be very, very different from our parents' experience, our children's experience. And, Mm -hmm. you know, embracing that is in fact, um, you know, an accelerator perhaps of, mm-hmm. uh, of the study of this. Yeah. And I think one thing that's come out of it is that by straddling those two cultures, I learned that neither is a monolith. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that we still struggle with in the South Asian diaspora is that we, we are perceived as, or South Asia and especially India is perceived as a single block when in fact it's just like Italy or Europe or any of these other countries that were, you know, existed in, in many, many different cuts before and are artificially combined into one, um, we are not a monolith. And so it's not a question of a single color, but it's actually, you know, unfortunately to use what everybody thinks of India, it's actually still very colorful. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, it's it's just like any other um, anthropology uh, discussion, right? I mean, you could say the same thing about New York City. You could say Correct. the same thing about Oakland. Correct. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll rejoin our conversation with Sandhya Jane Patel. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar. Let's rejoin my conversation with internationally respected art and culture expert, Sandhya Jain Patel. You're someone who, as a South Asian American, is really an expert in thinking of uh, culture, but really thinking of it as, you know, something uh, of a commodity um, Mm -hmm. to brand and to market in that way. Is there a both a kind of balancing act between the joy of that and the challenge of it, meaning, you know, the instinct perhaps to think of your, your own pride 
um, you know, or protect, you know, protectionism of that culture. I mean, how do you, how do you maybe marry some of those, you know, feelings when, when you're actually doing this work? Absolutely. It's, um, it can feel a little smarmy to monetize one's yeah. own art and culture and uh, to monetize anyone's art and culture for that matter. But that is what the art market is based on. That is what um, life and, and, and everything we touch is based on, right? Something is only valuable when it is perceived to have value. And whether that's a monetary value or that's a sentimental value or a combination thereof is what really makes the world go round. Um, when I was the head of the Indian department at Christie's, you know, I had to come to terms with that. My problem was that I thought everything was priceless. Right. <laughs> Which makes for very, very different pricing models, I guess. Exactly. I had to learn, well, because I came to it as a conservator. So I trained as a fine arts conservator and conservators are an academic, it's an academic profession. So you think of everything as needing to be saved and stabilized for posterity for all time. We're basically sanctioned hoarders. And so whether it's, you know, the smallest piece of paper or a sculpture made of wood versus stone or, you know, a piece of textile, whatever, they're all considered the same when you're looking at it from an academic's point of view. Um, and so I came to Christie's thinking that everything had to be saved, basically. Yeah. And what I realized very quickly is that there is a way to um, assign value to things accurately. And after all, value is just what somebody else is willing to pay for it. <laughs> well, let me ask you about that, because is there a difference or even an importance of who defines that value, right? Mm -hmm. it is, is it important for South Asians to define the boundaries and the value of what South Asian art and culture um, are, all, are all about? Um, or is there something that's really agnostic about that? Um, does it matter whether South Asians are, are defining the study and the narrative of South Asian culture or not? What do, you, what do you feel about that? I mean, I definitely think that South Asians need to be contributing to, if not in charge of, our own narrative. Um, for far too long, uh, as a subcontinent, we have been subjugated by foreigners, by Westerners. We all know about British colonialism. We've all read, or many of your listeners will have read, William Dalrymple's Anarchy, which is a great book if you haven't read it yet. Um, and it really is about the pillaging of the subcontinent, billions and billions and billions of dollars, you know, goods worth billions of dollars today being siphoned off and to enrich the British coffers, leaving behind a completely destitute country. Yeah. And so I think South Asians were subjugated, not just physically or monetarily, you know, by resources, but also emotionally and mentally. And that's, right. you know, very true. And I saw that play out again and again in, um, in at Christie's where something was perceived to have a certain amount of value, let's say by a South Indian client, a South, a South Asian client, excuse me. And then a non-South Asian client, often a Westerner will come in and pay 10 or 15 times that rate. And then right. the original client would say to me, wow, I didn't realize it was worth that much. And I'm like, you should, right. you should be the first person to say yeah. that. We yeah. have to value our own art and culture. If we don't, 
we can't blame someone else who will and then take it and take care of it for posterity. I mean, after all, that's the end goal, right? That these things are yeah. around for future generations to enjoy and learn from. So. Well, and, and is that a psychology that has to, has to either change or for that matter, really, um, you know, pivot to their, to this pride or even not just a pride, but a pride in, in monetary value that, um, you know, that, that just has so many variables for that matter. I think it all is rooted in education, honestly. Yeah. For those of us that did study in India at some point in, or other in our lives and were led around museums during our school tours, all you did was make a circle around the auditor- around the gallery and leave. Nobody talked about art. Nobody talked about the history of Indian art and culture. Um, very few people, I mean, there are significant numbers of people who do know this. I'm, I'm sort of, you know, inflating or creating um, grand stereotypes here. But by and large, the educational system within India does not teach its citizens to appreciate art and culture. Mm. And so then that what happens is then there's no recognition of the fact that these things are in fact valuable. Um, but if you come to America, you have a similar issue where if you study art history in this country, up until very recently, again, the narrative was pale, male, and stale. So you didn't learn about non-Western art. And even when you learned about Western art, it was through a male lens. There was, there's actually a very famous um, art history text that's taught as like the basic level for all art history classes in colleges, um, written by this man, Jansen. And he very famously said, I will not allow women artists in my book. So we all need more education. <laughs> right. I think, and I mean, you know, one thing that perhaps in the um, digital age that is a combat to that is in some ways, and, and we certainly feel this in, in medicine, we feel it probably in many, many different fields, but sort of the democratization of um, knowledge, right? That there's, there's so much available out there to, um, you know, really disseminate information in a very careful way. And yet, because it's so available, um, you know, in defining or describing that, you know, our opinions, which are so rapidly formed um, digitally, how, how do you cultivate this kind of dialogue that you just mentioned that's so thoughtful and so meaningful to ensure that there's an education behind things? and still sort of entrust that to a very, very scaled, wide audience? That is such a great question. The fact of the matter is, is that there are few free resources that do a good job, if any, that I can think of, that do a good job of really educating people on the importance of different, in this case, art and culture periods and times, if we're talking about South Asia or frankly, anywhere in the world. Right. A person themselves has to be motivated to learn that. I found, especially while, um, while doing my work, the only way to really do this is those direct conversations. Yeah. Small groups, lectures even are too big. You know, my, my greatest joy, and I cannot wait to be able to do this again, is to go to galleries, go to museums, go to auction houses with a handful of friends, with a handful of clients, and say, tell me what you see. What do you like? Tell me why you like it. Let's talk about it, you know? 
that's where people make the knowledge their own when they have that dialogue. I mean, you know this as a doctor. If you can teach somebody something, you've mastered the material yourself, right? And, and to, to sort of echo that even further, it's exactly what is missing from a digital experience. There's, you don't have that sense of connectivity. There's very little relationship development that you have if you're just doing that in a vacuum. And there's, in fact, such a power to the information that's out there, but being able to share a conversation with you walking through um, a museum or a gallery, or even, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily have the presence of the art or the culture in front of you. I think the discussion is what's so rich and vibrant Mm -hmm. to have, even when there's a lot of discordance, perhaps even in those discussions. Absolutely. The best discussions are the ones where one debates back and forth what are the merits or demerits of a particular object in front of you or any subject that you're talking about. So one of the things in medicine Mm -hmm. that is really challenging is, you know, developing this whole concept of entrustment. So the majority of my career, I have spent teaching other medical students and residents and, and whatnot. But a central question for someone in, in your field is how do you engender trust in the knowledge and expertise in a field that just has so many different variables and so much subjectivity that's built into it? How, how do you foster and cultivate that trust in your work? Ask a lot of questions. Mm. So, which, se- which seems opposite, right, of what you would think. Right. You would expect the person who doesn't know anything to ask a lot of questions, but actually it's the other way around. The person who does know more about that particular subject, the way that you develop that relationship with that client or that patient, right, is to ask them questions. You know, how do you feel? What is your primary concern here? What is, you know, what, what does this make you think of? What does this make you feel like? How does this look to you and you just keep asking them what is triggering them good bad or indifferent Mm -hmm. and eventually you arrive at that kernel of truth Um, and once they know that you're really interested and invested in hearing what they have to say they will follow you to the ends of the earth one of the things i've been meaning to ask you is you you talk about some of the sort of modern brown cultural signifiers, Mm -hmm. right? So as we kind of go forward in, you know, the future, and as, again, the sort of brown uh, idea or the South Asian American idea and experience becomes that much more prominent, what further now needs to be highlighted? Um, What elements are are you kind of looking forward to advancing more and more as, as we go forward? I'm glad you asked that question, and it refers a little bit back to something we said before, which is that South Asia is not a monolith. And so I think, and that's true for all all cultures that are not American, right? So um, my company, SRC Partners, our, one of our missions, or submissions, if you will, is to break down the rich tapestry that all of these other cultures contain. So whether you're talking about Turkey or Mexico or Iran or India, I mean, whatever it may be, China, Russia, whatever, 
they all are made up of pixels, tiny, tiny, tiny pixels that create this larger image that we see from a distance, but can we get close enough to identify each of those pixels, right? And so that's what we want to do is if there is a story that is depicting a person, a BIPOC or LGBTQIA or underrepresented individual, can we make it individual? Does it have to be a poster child for a community? I say we can make it individual. So is this person North Indian, South Indian, Eastern, Western, you know, do they, are they, what is their religion? What is their, the saint or the God that their family personally worshiped, you know, that kind of thing. How do they make their curry, you know? (laughs) What is their main masala mix? I mean, that kind of stuff, right? And I think that that's what's really going to further along the conversation for all of us that um, we need to be always stay curious and to keep digging and asking questions and having that dialogue with other people about who they are and where they come from. And then also discover that richness for ourselves so that we can take that beige color and see all the different pixels that make it up from a distance. Um, Sandhya, this has been terrific. I feel like we could probably talk about this for hours longer, um, but we'll leave it at that. Um, I hope you'll come back and join us again um, at some point. And thank you so much for, for being here. This has been so wonderful. Thank you, Abe, and I'm so looking forward to doing this again. Thanks. You've been listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Just a reminder that this episode was brought to you by the letter C and inspired by all those plaques and placards that my wife stops to read and that I'm sadly missing. You can catch us every Monday and Tuesday on Ruckus Avenue Radio and the Dash Radio app or wherever you get your podcast. See you next time on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Because every story told is a lesson learned. Because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share stories about South Asian people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hear it every Monday, Tuesday on Ruckus Avenue Radio or wherever you get your podcast.